Dr. Gillen. Thank you, Wesley Burton. Happy Chinese New Year. Thanks for listening. When you think of the hard knock, you think of that. Station of resistance. One of the most phenomenal beats of all time. Good information and great radio. News, views, and hip-hop. What? Do it the way you feel it. Hard knock. Hard knock. Hard knock. Radio. Monday through Friday. And it's from 4 to 5 p.m. Knocking hard in your area. 94.1 KPMA. Only revolution is our evolution. <sighs> so good. Andrew, listen to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno. Jocelyn's Bistro begins now. Good afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro. And hello to everybody. This afternoon we're going to be talking to a writer and the journey after publishing your first novel. The writer is Pauline Canabley Williams, which you have heard her on the show before, maybe five to six months ago. We're going to catch up with Pauline and find out what's it been like for her. Who have she met on the road after being published? And what's she working on now? But before we do that, I'd like to say happy birthday to an artist in St. Paul, Minnesota, John Ashton. John Ashton, born in the year of the horse. He, I heard, might be coming back to playing the trumpet. He had his first play done at St. Thomas College in St. Paul, Minnesota years ago. Let that go for a while to begin the process of raising a family. But I heard that he may pick up his trumpet. The trumpet story is that he pondered to go out with the woman, never picked it up again. But he is somewhere in his dreams considering it. And he may hit the notes to tell us what his journey has been like. John Ashton in St. Paul. Happy birthday, year of the horse. And now let's move into the direction of the novelist. If you'd like to join us at any point in the conversation, please do, because you are, as always, my co-host. The number you would call, 510-848-4425. And if you're outside the 510 area code, then you will call 800 800- Nine five eight nine zero zero eight. Pauline. Hello. Hi, Pauline. How you doing? Hi. I'm good, thank you. I'm excellent, excellent. So, if you heard the intro, I said that I wanted to talk to you about the journey that has happened since finding Hollis, your first novel in the world. How long has it been since we have embraced finding Hollis for those who have had an opportunity to read the story? Uh, the book was released in June. In June. So it's been a little yeah. bit more than six months since we've talked. Yes. Absolutely. And so tell us, for those who are just being introduced to the book, what tell us the story of Hollis briefly. Well, Finding Hollis is a novel set in the 1940s in North Minneapolis. And um, 
through the characters that uh, come to life in the book, uh, we get to learn a little bit about what life was like in the 1940s, not only for the people who, um, like my family, um, had lived there for a long time, many generations, um, but people who had newly arrived. And um, it really is a look into the racial climate of the time and what was going on and um, how people who... In some ways, society tried to keep separate how um, their lives came together and what they learned from that. And in Finding Hollis, the characters come together because of a tragic accident. Yes. Uh, the story begins with a streetcar accident where a young woman uh, steps off the train and her dress is caught in the fender of a passing car, a passing truck. And... Um, she is dragged behind it for a little while, and then her dress um, tears, and she um, rolls to a stop. A woman who was standing behind her and who comes to be the main character in the book runs after her and bends down and receives a final request from the dying woman, and the request is to find Hollis, and that sets the story in motion. And the woman who was dragged by the truck, Hazel. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the language in the 1940s, she was a colored woman. Right. And Frances, who is a white woman, actually gave way for the woman to step off the bus first. Right. Is an act of kindness. Right. And even more so, uh, probably an act of curiosity. Okay. To see, this is the first time that she had seen a colored woman on riding this line, and uh, so she just, uh, you know, was kind of enthralled by it all, and imagined on a Friday evening where this woman be, could be going to, and then suddenly realized that she couldn't really imagine because she didn't really know enough about people that didn't feel like her, um, because her world was so separate from people of color. So the part of that, that she let the woman go forward, is what um, moves her to decide to honor the request. And at first she tries to dismiss that this woman, you know, told her to find Hollis, and um, she tries to let it go, but in the end she decides that she will help find Hollis. And then the story is really about what she learns, as well as a number of other characters, including the woman who dies, Hazel, mm-hmm. her fiancé, mm-hmm. um, what uh, whose name is Cotton, what Cotton and Francis come to learn, and um, the other more minor characters in the book. And, yes, and one of the characters being the man who is actually driving the truck. Yes. Mm-hmm. And who exactly takes that journey on what happens when uh, Cotton actually meets the man who was responsible for the death of his fiance. Right. Yeah. And it's actually not Cotton, it's another character, it's Hazel's father. Hazel, that's who, okay. Hazel's yeah, father. who comes, who needs to know who yes. killed his, his daughter and um, ends up meeting face-to-face um, the man who did it. And I 
You know, I really hesitate to talk about yeah, don't. too far into the novel. Right, 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 right. And I don't but want I you to because it is very, it's a diff, interesting twist that happens with that. Uh, so right. absolutely, so I can, I can respect the fact that you would want to move any further because moving further would actually may reveal something. And for anyone who right. hasn't had an opportunity to uh, read Finding Hollis, uh, would like to take that journey on their right. own as I was surprised as I began to move through it. So. But I would like to say about that, that that scene is one of my favorites in the book. And every time I read it, I'm brought to tears. Be, um, so I'm, you know, I've often wondered what touches me so much about um, what happens in that scene. So I was, you know, it's, I'm curious about how readers feel about it. Absolutely. So as a writer, this particular scene brings you to tears even now when you read it. So, how do we interpret that? You wrote it, and yet when you approach it as the reader, it brings you to tears. What is it about that that humbles you so? You know, I think what it is is that um, that scene touches um, the best in me, kind of like through the actions of that character. His name is Lewis. I realize he does something that I would hope that I could do. And, um, you know, I I feel like many of my characters come to do things that I admire in them. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, why am I? I need to write a book where the characters are awful (laughs) and do horrible things. And then I can't bring myself to do it because it's like it's cathartic, the writing process for me. It's like making myself better through my characters or making them the people I would like to be and not wholly like I still try to make them believable that they would have aspects that, um, you know, any normal person would have. But trying to find something in them that um, is really human and I think that speaks to what how we could be in, in, at, when we're at our best. You know, when I think, when I listen to you, Pauline, I, I think about... When when you say that you would like to make them maybe do horrible things, because we do live in a culture where when we we witness the media, entertainment, or whatever language we want to use, it usually is it's like pow pow, cars blowing up, people shooting. But when what I hear you saying is that the character in this particular scene, they bring out the best in you. So here's a horrible situation that has happened. A person has has died. A person was driving the truck. And then here's the father searching for this person, finds the person, and then something unfolds that stretches one's humanity. Mm -hmm. And that part of it, I think, is what, and I understand that as a writer, that stretches our humanity even beyond what we understand ourselves mm-hmm. how we can rise up to something that we that our characters can which encourages us so in this case it's almost like as if your characters are mentoring you mm-hmm. oh absolutely okay. i i was uh saying to someone not too long ago that every time i read a reread finding hollis i learned something new about the characters and i caught myself saying oh so that's what he meant by that and I thought, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> that's weird because, you know, I was the one that supposedly wrote that. But I really feel like, I mean, that's what the writing process does is that it teaches me something. 
And like on one level, I write because I want I want my voice to be heard by others. But on a more deeper level, I'm I'm just trying to understand myself, and I and and I'm has this beautiful avenue of creating fiction and and um having a story unwind and people and then these amazing characters come out and i'm just going for the ride and then i'm learning something along the way and i think back to your point is that isn't that what we really want in life is to like come into moments when we can shine and when we can be our best and then that's like when you really feel alive and on I'd like to have it happen in my daily life all the time, but it doesn't. So if I have to do it through writing and through my characters, then I, I guess I'm just blessed to at least have that outlet. Well, there's a medi- uh, meditation that goes like this. When we surrender to our passion, to our joy, to our heart, our purpose, when that happens and we trust that, then that will teach us about this thing that we are experiencing called life. And it sounds like you have surrendered, bowed down to your passion, which is writing, and that it is offering you up the information of the universe through your characters what or whatever part of the universe you're supposed to understand. Mm-hmm. And so when you say it doesn't happen in your daily life i think we all could agree we're all looking for the aha moment mm-hmm. and we do that in our relationships and however else we uh, seek and f- uh, to find but I, I i think that it is when we surrender to the beauty of who we are the joy the passion and, and i've been randomly asking people what is your passion and they are like deer in the headlights and they say i don't know I don't know, which only means to me, when I think about that compassionately, how do I encourage myself and others to find that passion? Mm-hmm. So, do you have uh, the book in front of you? Yes. Okay. If you could read off of page 104, mm. the second okay. paragraph, chapter 11, from Finding Hollis. Am I going to give anything away? No. <laughs> Other than the beauty of the language, if you d- if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, 104, so chapter 11, right? Yes, second is the second paragraph. It starts with, it was not the moonlight. Okay, and just read that paragraph. Yes. Okay. It was not the moonlight. He had lived under its charm forever. Nor the stars high above. Those two he knew by heart. The late hour... The stillness of the night, these helped, as did the abandoned caution that led him to visit the girl whom he never could push entirely from his thoughts. No, mostly it was Ava's eyes studying his face, which convinced him to tell his story, and the way she pulled at the words as if they were green tops to the carrots buried below. He began with the news that he'd soon be leaving for life in the north, where things were far better and certainly more fair. With that said, the air of impermanence encouraged him to relay to her the details of his life, infused with emotions that had, up until now, 
been concealed but not at all dismissed. Okay. What, yes, sorry, keep going. Yes. In fact, little. keep going for a while because okay. really, I've gotten into it, Okay. as I'm sure our listeners have. At one point, she asked, what did your daddy do when your mama died? Carried on. What else could he have done? She raised an eyebrow. Gave up. Could have left somebody else to take care of you. This was the point at which Ava might have introduced her own tale of loss. But death and neglect, she wanted to assume, were two different creatures. For her, there was still a chance. Something rustled in the brush behind them, then went quiet. They sat still for a moment, listening to the noises of the night. When Cotton spoke again, it was nearly a whisper, wanting his voice to blend with the sounds in place. He continued his story, telling her about the green walls of the room inside the courthouse and the two men standing between him and his desire for military service. He told her of the rainstorm, the drooping flowers, and the dazzling assurance that there was more for him than a life in uniform. You, uh, tell us about this passage because it's inter- it, the if my memory serves me correctly, he when you talked in earlier when we started our interview, you said that this was about race relationships in the forties, mm-hmm. and this what he is thinking about the military uniform. Tell us about what happened when he went in to register for the mm-hmm. military. So Cotton is a young man who lives in Arkansas, and um, he lives with his father in a one-room house, and um, really all they've known is working in the fields, and um, he wants to get out of his small little town in Arkansas, and he suddenly sees that maybe joining the service will be a way to get out. So... um, he he approaches his dad, his father, and his father says, you know, that man's not going to let us off his plantation. So he travels a few towns over and uh, goes in to try to register um, in that town. And now, what I why I decided that his father would discourage him is because at that time, really, whoever you worked for, your white boss was in charge of letting you do something like that. So he, if he had tried to register in his own town, you know, they would have said he would have been showing up, the boss he worked for, and he would have been, gotten in trouble. So he walks two um, towns over and enters this room on a really hot day, and there's two white men standing or sitting behind um, a table having their sandwiches and their knee-high colas, and they just stare at him and he doesn't even get a chance to speak and one man just starts talking about I know you didn't come in here trying to do trying to register and goes on and on and then Cotton eventually just uh, finds a way to slip back out of the room without even uh, asking if he can register because he knows and then on his way home there's a rainstorm and the sun comes out after it and all of a sudden he sees the world in a different way and he realizes that there's going to be more to his life than that and he's going to find find a way out and he doesn't even know why he doesn't even see clearly why or how he just can kind of feel something right under the surface that something is going to happen and then it eventually does absolutely and so the journey after writing finding hollis having it published moving out into the world 
Give us a snapshot, Paulina, what that's been like for you. Oh, it's been so fun. Um, I, um, you know, I have a, the book has been published by Forty Press, a small publishing house out of Minneapolis. And because the book is set in Minneapolis, I've gone there for a couple, uh, for a number of different events at a couple different times throughout the year. And it's just been so cool, the people that I've met and who've come up to me and who have been touched by the book, either they're from North Minneapolis or they, um, they, you know, they knew someone who knew my family. My family has lived in that neighborhood for five generations. And then just complete strangers who have emailed me and told me about how moved they have been by the book. And, like, I've had one man write me eight paragraphs on how he interpreted the book, and and especially around the issue of race. And um, I've had people email me from Germany. Um, I've just had so many people, interesting people, and I just feel like that's been such a blessing. Here I thought I was giving something of myself to these readers and then I realized that I was get, you know through them I get so much back it's kind of like I had a, a friend once who every time I thanked her for something the way she said you're welcome would just make me pause and I'd think something about how she said that she seemed like she got so much more out of whatever just happened and I'd be like wait a minute <laughs> well didn't you just do me a favor but that's kind of how it feels it has this wondrous feeling like we just ex- had a mutual exchange of something really nice so the demographics of the man who sent you the letter with of eight paragraphs do you know yeah. he, he's from a small town in Minneapolis and I think he said he was a lawyer and he's he just really likes to read so he still emails me and tells me oh you gotta you gotta read this book you just told me about a Sinclair Lewis a Sinc- ah, uh, Sinclair Lewis Lewis Sinclair yeah a, a novel Right. And um, set in the 40s in Minneapolis called King's Blood Royal. So I just read that, and we've been going back and forth talking about it. And I met a man from, I went to a book reading, a, a, a book club. Um, some people in Pennsylvania invited me. And I went with a small group, and there was a man from Australia. And we've been emailing back and forth with, like, oh, I just read this. you got to read that. And then we analyze it together. It's just all these wonderful people, you know, sharing what they have to offer and it's it's been really nice and you are working on what now i'm working on another book this time set a hundred years earlier so in the 1850s and it's set out on the east coast where i now live um it's going to be set in both pennsylvania and a little bit in new jersey and it opens in the year 1850 which is the year that the fugitive slave law was strengthened so suddenly, um, in America, it becomes um, a real issue about whether you're harboring slaves or helping slaves escape. And all of a sudden, it's to your benefit um, to turn in people that you think might be slaves. And so it really changes the dynamics of what uh, life was like in the North for free black people. So I want to explore that topic. Um, and kind of see where that takes me why why do you think that you are so deeply rooted in the understanding of black experience in america and the two bodies of work that you're exploring because uh, your mom's hungarian right 
Oh, uh, yeah. And your but, dad? Uh, but, what? Well, my dad is German. You know, but they, again, my ancestors came here in the early 1800s. So really when I grew up, I vaguely sent, you know, we were kind of German, but we weren't. We were mostly American um, is how we looked at it. You know what? I often ask myself that question, and I think it has something to do with um, when I was young. I must have really been impressed by a number of things that made me look at the world and um, what was fair and what wasn't. And um, I also had a, a neighbor, <laughs> and it's weird. I think about this sometimes. He was like a teenage kid. He was a black kid with, I remember he had a big afro because it was the 70s. And, you know, like, I have a ton of siblings, but somehow he really took, a, he really paid a lot of attention to me. So we would run around and play games, and he would hold me on his hip because I was like three or four, and we'd play Monster. I don't know, I just, Buster Smith really, I, I don't know, sometimes I think, oh, maybe it was him. And then I ran into him when I was in high school one time. He stuck his head out of a phone booth and said, are you... And I said, yeah, I'm a Knavely. And then I said, who are you? And then he told me, and then we just stared at each other. <laughs> and then we just walked away. And I, 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 and I think also just my parents really had a sense of fairness and justice. And we lived in an integrated neighborhood. And they made me ask why things were like they like the way they were, as opposed to look at how these people live or look at what, why people do this. Uh, instead of looking at just that people do that, they always encourage me to ask why. Why would someone end up living a life like this? And I think that really made a big impression on me. I have just, have I made any sense? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I like that. <laughs> in your new body of work, do you have it in front of you to, to give us a... I Excerpt I do. Of, yes, please do. I do have a little bit. And granted, now, I, I was rewriting this at six at 3.20, your time. So Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is the opening uh, to the book. On Tuesday, despite the weight of the afternoon to which Bernhardt placed blame for his slow and gelatinous movements, he sat down to his note-taking. He had drawn the curtains to muffle the whistling clatter from the street below and to deter the company of a wayward, drunken wasp. This time of year, when the chill of the morning lifted and the day reached full strength, anyone trapped in a narrow room couldn't help but feel slightly ridiculed for beginning the day in an overcoat. Soon the weather would hold crisp and cool, bringing with it the sense by which one could mark a turn. The weak sun would be sought for whatever warmth it might give, the night air would seep through the poorly fit window panes and flirt with the flames in the grate. Like many, Bernhard Holmes would attribute the change in the air to the new season and not to the arrival of a stranger, nor the strengthening of an old law, nor a cook's dead grandfather, nor a tattered charm bag hidden amidst the folds of an ordinary skirt. Now, and who is this character? Well, Bernhard Holmes um, is going to be one of the characters who um, ends up needing to decide what he really wants to do with his life. I, I can't, see, I, I can't even tell you. <laughs> I mean, 
I feel like once I explain what's going to happen, I give everything away. So there's going to be a mysterious stranger who who arrives who shakes up a household that's used to just going about life the way it is, and she's going to demand from them uh, that they partake in something. And how, so this is a household of a family? Um, it, it is a household. Bernhard Holmes is courting a woman named Agnes. Okay. And we go to her home where she lives with her aunt and uncle. And there's the cook called Plum Penny mm-hmm. and a new woman that arrives at the back door named Larkspur. And uh, from there, the, the story unfolds. Thank you so much, Pauline, and the best in your writing and your journey again. And thank you for being my guest today. And thank you to our listeners who I hope have enjoyed this half hour of Cover to Cover, Javan's Bistro. Listen every week for Cover to Cover. We bring you the humanities, the arts with pleasure. And happy birthday to the artist in St. Paul, John Ashton. Some folks know Tom Hayden as a revolutionary activist of the 60s, later California Assembly member, then state senator. For all these years, Tom has been deeply involved with Cuba. Now he's talking about it. His new book is Listen Yankee, Why Cuba Matters. He'll be at First Congregational Church in Berkeley, 2456 Channing Way, on Tuesday, March 18th, 7.30 p.m. There's wheelchair access. The terrific Gloria Lariva, also deeply familiar with Cuba, will host this KPFA benefit. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. Find more info on the KPFA website about March 18th, Tom Hayden, Gloria Lariva. Cuba. And you are listening to 